we are ready to continue. So we have been going through Matthew, uh, and we have come to uh, message number nine in this series entitled Jesus Says. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter five, verses 17 to 20. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So what we know as this Sermon on the Mount begins here in Matthew chapter number 5 with verse 1 and and goes to the end of chapter number 7. So the beginning that we looked at last time uh, of this chapter and of this uh, teaching from Jesus functions like an introduction um, to the teaching that he gives. And Jesus, obviously, when you look at what we refer to as the Beatitudes and, and the little section that follows there, he's obviously speaking to present conditions. He, he talks about the prospects of present suffering. He talks about future rewards. So Jesus promises rewards for those who love righteousness. And he proceeds, um, or, or as he proceeds, as you go throughout this teaching, Jesus is expanding on this introduction throughout this lengthy teaching. But the concept of righteousness that begins there in, in the very beginning is an extremely important concept in in these few chapters in particular in this teaching that Jesus gives. So, now the word itself only appears about four times in chapters 5 to 7, but here in verse 20, which we're actually going to be looking at this morning, this verse actually reveals the importance of righteousness when Jesus says that without some righteousness and when I say some, I, I'm just using that as sort of a placeholder. We're not defining righteousness yet. I'm just saying there's some sort of righteousness that Jesus is talking about here. And without it, he says, you will not enter the kingdom um, of heaven. So obviously this is a very serious concept, this concept of righteousness. Now, Jesus summed up this introduction by pointing to the influence that kingdom citizens would have in this world before the kingdom comes. So all about living in this time, even living in in this day as we are before um, the return of Christ. So in other words, as we go throughout this teaching, we understand Jesus is not giving us here some optional suggestions. Um, Here's some things you can try. Here's some good advice. Um, here's some, you know, here's some ideas. That's not what Jesus is giving us. He's, he's giving us, as, as we're going to see, commands that are to be obeyed. Now, in verses 17 to 20, which sort of is a, a, a sort of a transitional paragraph that goes from the beginning of this that launches into what follows, Jesus explained in, in these few verses what he was 
and was not doing on the mountain in Galilee and as it relates to his broader ministry and mission. So we have four verses here that are crucial to interpreting these three chapters in particular correctly. Now, one of the consistently difficult questions, and in fact um, continues to be a difficulty for, for many today, would be the, re- what, the relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament, the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament, and the relationship between New Covenant believers and the Old Testament. And views on these vary widely among Christians and churches and theological systems and, and all sorts. It's, it's a very, um, you might say, it's a very fundamental sort of question when it comes to understanding what this book really is and what it is that it is saying to us, and particularly Jesus' teaching here on the mount in Galilee. Now, it's clear by the time that you get to verse number 20 in this chapter that righteousness is a supremely important issue, and so we are going to need to understand what it means, and hopefully we'll have some idea of that by the time that that we are through. We want to look at this paragraph in two parts. So in verses 17 and 18, where Jesus makes clear that he's not destroying. And in verses 19 to 20, where Jesus speaks about exceeding righteousness. So we're going to start at the first part, where Jesus says that he is not destroying. Let's look at verse 17 again. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So Jesus began by saying... Essentially, do not misinterpret my words and actions. Don't think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. Now, as we're going through Matthew's gospel, we're just in chapter number 5. We're still in the early part of this gospel, though we are now getting in the beginnings of the first um, main Galilee part of ministry um, in the ministry of Jesus. But... By this time in Matthew's gospel, he's only hinted at a little bit of opposition, a little bit of hostility that Jesus has faced for his words and actions. And though we are near the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we have to remember that we're actually over a year into the public ministry of Jesus after that he was baptized and tempted in the wilderness. So remember uh, back in in chapter 4 and verse number 12, Matthew mentioned how that, um, that John had already been put into prison by this time. There's a lot of things that's happened. In fact, Jesus has made his visit to the temple, the first cleansing of the temple. That's already taken place. He has already had his nighttime conversation with Nicodemus by this point. He has already talked to the woman at the well in Samaria. He's already turned the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. So there's a lot of things that have already taken place, and Jesus has, has spent a lot of time teaching. Uh, remember how at the end of, of chapter 4 it talked about all, all those multitudes from all those different regions around were coming to Jesus, and he's, he's healing all these different kinds of, of diseases and, and casting out devils and all these sort of things that, that Matthew mentions. So by the time that you get to this point, this isn't the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's already had encounters with 
some of the Jewish leaders and some that were, were not necessarily friendly to him and his ministry. So he has encountered hostility and opposition, though Matthew hasn't really touched on it that much here. But understanding that in the background helps us understand the way that Jesus begins here in this verse. Don't think that I come to destroy the law. So the way Jesus starts, it shows us that at least there were some that thought that's exactly what Jesus was doing. That through his words and his actions, he was actually undoing the Old Testament. He had been judged by some, at least in in that time already, that he was in some way in contradiction to the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, what we know as as those um, 39 books of the Old Testament. Now, Jesus here twice uses this word that's translated destroy. And it's a word that essentially has the idea of tearing down. Um, It's it's actually a a compound, and that prefix kata, which is used at the beginning of this word, is what gives it the idea of down. So tearing down. We we might say, think of like demolishing a building. In fact, Matthew uses this word this very way three different times, and in all three of those times, it refers to tearing down the temple. And that's Matthew 24, 2, Matthew 26, 61, Matthew 27, verse 48. So Jesus says, don't think that I have come to tear down the law or the prophets. Now, what does Jesus mean by the law or the prophets? Now, law and prophets are two terms that are frequently used together in the New Testament, and they're frequently used together to refer to the entirety of the Old Testament, sort of a a shorthand or abbreviated way of referring to the Old Testament. They They didn't use that terminology or even have that terminology, Old Testament, New Testament, like we have today. How they referred to the collection of the scrolls that we know as the Old Testament was by the law and the prophets. In fact, there were three main divisions of the, those scrolls by the Jesus' time. You had the law, which was the books of Moses, or what we know of as the Pentateuch. You had the prophets, which included the major and the minor prophets, and also included some of the books that we think of as history. And then they had the collection known as the writings. And the writings are mostly what we would refer to as wisdom literature, like Psalms and, um, and Proverbs. And even, sometimes, though, even, even in a shorthanded way, they would refer to the writings, they would refer to it simply as the Psalms. And they'd be referring to that collection of scrolls that we would call wisdom literature. So again, when we, when we remember, even though we've got you know, our Bibles nicely bound in front of us, uh, it's, it's actually 66 different books that are bound together. And so in, in Jesus' day, they didn't have a bound book containing all 39 books of the Old Testament, but rather they were in collections of scrolls, and they were referred to in these three main divisions. So it's very common, and especially when you see those words used together, law and the prophets, when you see those words used together, that it's sort of a, a reference to the Old Testament. It's a reference to the entirety of the Old Testament. And in fact, Matthew uses those terms again later to refer to the Old Testament, obviously, in, in chapter 7 and verse 12, chapter 11 and verse 13, chapter 22 and verse number 40. And you get outside Matthew, and there's a number of, of references as well in other books and parts of the New Testament. 
So Jesus is using the term here to refer to the Old Testament in its entirety. And this would mean the prophecies and the commands and the promises and whatever that that you would think of contained in the Old Testament books. Now, law and prophets, again, is a very common phrase, but that's not exactly what Jesus said here. Jesus said, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. As far as I know, that's the only place that that particular phrase is used. Law or the prophets. It's certainly uncommon. Now, in verse 18, which we're going to get to in a a couple moments, but in verse 18, this verse is an explanation of verse number 17. And so it, it shows by what we see in verse 18 as well that Jesus is indeed referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. Now, why would he say the law or the prophets? Why would he put that in that way? Well, obviously, he said that he did not come to destroy the law or the prophets, and by that, he's, he is indicating he didn't, he didn't come to destroy any part of it, neither the law nor the prophets. In other words, no part of the Old Testament did Jesus come to tear down. That's the, that's the meaning of what he's saying. Now, the word for fulfill, he says, I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, the word for fulfill that's used here, it does, it does mean to fill up completely. Um, it could be used for the filling up of a jar or a pot or something with, with water. Um, but it also has the idea of, of to finish something, to complete something, to, to bring something to completion. And Matthew actually uses this word quite frequently to refer to the literal fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture. So we've already seen it a number of times. Chapter 1, verse 22. Chapter 2, verse 23. Chapter 4, and verse number 14. And, and Matthew goes on. In fact, Matthew makes quite a number of, of, of references throughout his gospel that Jesus did this or this happened or occurred in order that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. In other words, a prophecy is, is not seen as being completed until it is fulfilled. In other words, a, a promise, or we might think of it as a prediction, uh, but a prophecy has been made that has not yet come true, then that prophecy needs to be fulfilled. It needs to be completed. Now, also understand that the expression here about Jesus coming to fulfill, that it is, it's active. In other words, it's indicating that Jesus said that he came to fulfill the Old Testament. In other words, that he has a part, that he's actively fulfilling the Old Testament, and that is why he came. And, of course, obviously there would be special emphasis on messianic prophecy. So think of, think of an example like in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21, where Jesus, speaking to his disciples, it says, from that time forth, Jesus began to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. He must. Why must he? Well, in other places he explained why he must do something was in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. So Jesus says, don't don't think that I'm come to 
tear down, to demolish, to destroy, to abolish, to annul the Old Testament scriptures. I didn't come for that at all. In fact, I have come that they might be fulfilled. So one implication that we could take from that is that if Jesus had not come, they, they would not be fulfilled. He came that they might be fulfilled. That is his mission. Verse number 18. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. So verse 18, and, and you see it starts there with that gar, that for, um, Jesus is explaining because he's, he's giving further explanation of what he had just said, that he came to, not to destroy but to fulfill. And he's saying, for verily I say unto you, and so on. Now, the word for verily, which uh, is, is common, and we'll see it in, in a number of statements that, that Jesus makes especially, the word itself means truly, and it emphasizes the certainty of what is being said. That's, that's the point. It's, it's emphasizing that I'm telling you something that is certain, something that is sure. This is not, this is not something that is a guess um, or a possibility or even a probability. This is something that is certain. And so sometimes he does um, emphasize what he is saying in that way, and he, he does so here. For verily I say unto you, of a certainty I am saying unto you. Now, we need to pay attention to that expression. I say unto you. That expression Jesus uses it 13 times here in chapters 5 to 7. Now, I say unto you, followed by some statement. And then there's also other references where Jesus talks about his commands or the things he's, or the words that he has spoken or what have you also here in chapters 5 to 7. So Jesus is clearly communicating that he is giving law he is teaching um, and uh, giving commands that are to be obeyed and if you recall when you get to the end of this particular teaching you get chapter 7 and verse number 29 it talks about how the multitude that had that had listened to all of this were astonished because he taught with authority in other words he is giving commands. He's not teaching like the scribes. The scribes, when they sought to teach the, the scriptures, they simply tried to, to bring out what was there and, and, and what it meant and, and, and that sort of thing. But Jesus is doing something different than that. Jesus is actually giving commands that are to be obeyed. He says they're astonished that, that anyone would do this and that Jesus did it. So the emphasis is drawn here on the fact that, that Jesus says, I say, I say, I tell you, I am saying to you. So what he was doing and what he was saying were what he came to do in order to fulfill the Old Testament. That would include, of course, messianic prophecies, uh, kingdom prophecies, covenant promises, um, promises pertaining to Israel and the nations and, and, and so on. Everything that the Old Testament had promised to do. Now notice what he says there in verse 18. As he gets into the explanation, he says, Till heaven and earth pass. Until heaven and earth pass away. 
um, is essentially what he's saying. And, and by this, he's expressing the certainty of his statement. And it's similar, actually, to what God says through Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 35 and 36. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinance of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. In other words, if the sun and the moon and the stars go away and cease to perform the functions for which they were created and over which God... Um, um, stands or, or sits in, in rule, if that ceased to happen, then Israel might cease to be a nation with promises beginning all the way back with Abraham. Well, of course, the expression is, is meant to um, convey that's not going to happen. <laughs> this is a certainty. Yes, um, Jeremiah prophesied in times of, of the exile but this nation will be regathered and restored. A, pro a prophecy, by the way, that is still yet to be fulfilled. And part of Jesus' coming was that in all things that might be fulfilled. So that is still future to us. But anyway, Jesus is saying something very similar here. He's saying, until heaven and earth pass away, there's not one jot or one tittle, that word for jot there, um, in the Greek, I believe is, is iota, which um, refers to a, a letter of the Greek alphabet. But most likely the reference here actually is a letter to the, of, of the Hebrew alphabet, the, the Hebrew letter yod, which um, is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It kind of just looks like, uh, kind of just looks like a, a little apostrophe uh, that we would use in, in maybe a, um, some sort of a possessive pronoun situation. Um, and tittle refers to the, the small dots or the small strokes that distinguish the letters and obviously one of the difficulties when it, when you try to learn um, another language and you start you know, studying an alphabet even if it's a, a phonetic based alphabet like English is and, and Greek and, and Hebrew are um, the letters they they look very strange but not only do they look strange but oftentimes they look very similar and it's hard to distinguish them. And so teachers, you know, they'll give you tests and, and, and they know that, you're, that it's easily to confuse certain letters because they look so much alike. And, and that is the case with, with different letters in, in Hebrew like, like Reish or Dalit. Um, they look very, very similar except Dalit has a, has a little, uh, just a little piece that extends beyond before that, that vertical stroke. And the, the Reish is just sort of rounded and it just has a... a, a top horizontal and comes down. So they're very, very similar. Um, bait and cough are very, very similar. Bait has just a little foot out on the, the right at the bottom right corner of it and cough. And other, other than that, they look identical. Um, hay and, and het and um, tav, again, they look very, very similar except for just little strokes here and there. And so one of the difficulties you know, in learning uh, a language in an alphabet like that is learning to distinguish those letters because obviously it makes a difference. I mean, even in English, I mean, we can, we can misspell words, and sometimes it's obvious that it's a misspelling, and sometimes it's misspelled, but it's actually a different word than the one that was intended. So anyway, so this is what Jesus is talking about. In other words, the point is, we have the Old Testament scriptures as a written record 
of God's revelation. It's been written down with a quill on a, on a parchment in, in the um, originals and then copied and copied and copied. And Jesus says that not even the smallest letter or the smallest stroke of a letter of the written Old Testament is going to pass away or perish without being fulfilled. Now, the word for fulfilled here is a little different, but it does mean accomplished. It's going to be accomplished, Jesus says. And he does say, till all be fulfilled. And so he's emphasizing everything belonging to the Old Testament down to the least letter and the smallest stroke on a letter is going to be fulfilled. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying he's not tearing down, he's not altering, he's not doing away with, he's not deconstructing the Old Testament. Now, if that causes any difficulty between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, in other words, if we have any difficulty in, in, in trying to, to think about that and comprehend it, the Old Testament promises that the Old Covenant will be superseded by the New Covenant. So that supersession is fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. It's not a tearing down or a deleting or a reinterpreting or a doing away with the Old Covenant portion of the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying that he came, um, that that might all be accomplished. Notice also one more thing here in verse number 18. He says that it will no wise pass from the law until all be fulfilled. Now here he is abbreviating. He simply is using the law for the Old Testament. Earlier he said the law or the prophets. And so it's not uncommon, in fact, also to just, to just in a shorthand way, refer to the Old Testament as just the law and meaning the whole entire Old Testament. Matthew twenty two thirty six is a place where that happens. Um, there's other places as well outside of Matthew. Now, many here want to take this reference to the law to be only a reference to the Old Covenant law, the books of Moses, or, or maybe even the Ten Commandments or something. But if you, if you follow it along contextually, you see how that's just not possible because Jesus would be contradicting himself because he just made the point that he came to fulfill and he would not demolish the law or the prophets, not in, not in any part would he, would he demolish the Old Testament, not even down to the smallest letter or stroke of a letter would he demolish it, and now he's, he would say that only the law is what is going to be accomplished. So obviously that's not what he is saying. So again, it is a reference to the, the entire Old Testament. Um, it, will, it will be fulfilled in its entirety. So now we get to verses 19 and 20, where Jesus now speaks as he's, he's making, a, uh, making an application. He says in verse 19, Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is giving a consequence now of what he came to do. And in fact, this is what he is doing. Now, the word for break, he, he speaks of whoever shall break one of these least commandments. The word for break is actually the root from the compound that's used for destroy up there in verse number 17. 
So you have the root for destroy, and you have that little prefix for down, which gives the idea of tearing down. That's used in verse 17. Here you just have the root, and it has the idea of undoing or loosing. In fact, it could refer to like untying someone. It could refer to setting a, a, a prisoner free. Uh, there's a number of, of, of ways that, that it could be used. But Jesus says, so he says here, essentially saying the same thing as what he said that he did not come to do. He didn't come to destroy the law. But whoever, he says here, shall break one of these least commandments. In other words, anyone who does to his words what he was being accused of doing to the Old Testament. So these commandments refer to his commandments, his teaching. Again, remember that expression. Jesus repeatedly said, I say unto you. And he taught with authority, meaning that he commanded them to obey his commandments. His commandments are the things that, that he has been giving and is giving to them. So we see in chapter 7, verse 24 uh, and 26 and down to the end in 29, he refers to my words. If you hear and, and obey my words that I have given to you, then you're like a wise man and so on. Of course, we'll, we'll get to that. So these commandments is not referring backward to the Old Testament in this sense. It's referring to what Jesus is saying unto them, the commandments that he is giving them. And to relax or to loosen any of them will have consequences in the kingdom. He says, the, these, um, notice how he describes these commandments as least commandments. One of the least of the, of the commandments. Well, obviously by saying that, he's, he's implying that there are heavier and lighter commands. Now that's actually the way that the rabbis traditionally understood the old covenant law as well that there were heavier and there were lighter commandments. So the idea of, of heavier and lighter commandments is probably the easy, most easily seen when the keeping of commandments leads to a dilemma. In other words, keeping this commandment or keeping this commandment leads to, leads to some sort of a conflict. There's some sort of a problem and so the idea was well which one is heavier which one is heavier if you find the heavier command then that's the one you should obey in that particular situation we'll consider um, an example of this in, 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 a, in a moment but Jesus says one of the least of the commandments that I'm giving now verse 20 for I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, first of all, the scribes and the Pharisees have only been mentioned a couple of times at this point by Matthew. Uh, chapter 2 and verse 4, uh, when they were being questioned about what the Old Testament prophesied as far as concerning the timing and the birth of, of, of the Christ. Um, in chapter 3 and verse 7, when they came out to John's baptism and, uh, of course, John uh, rebuked them when they, when they did, they, they've, only, they've only been mentioned 
um, just barely at this point. And now we see something about exceeding the righteousness of scribes and, and Pharisees in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. So we have to, we have to ask this question, what is righteousness? What, what is meant by this? Now, if, if I um, just asked everybody, you know, what, what is righteousness? The way that we think about righteousness usually is in a couple of ways. One, we, we think of righteousness in terms of uh, moral or ethical correctness. In other words, there's some sort of fixed standard, and we think about how that, that we meet or fall short of that particular standard in the correctness or incorrectness of our actions. So that's one way that we tend to think about righteousness. Another way that we tend to think about righteousness would be in more legal terms, that it, it would describe the standing that someone has, the legal standing that someone has of righteousness. In other words, they're innocent or they're not guilty of transgression. And Paul um, referred to that um, in, uh, I believe it was in, in his letter to the Philippians when he spoke about uh, being blameless according to the law. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about a, a legal standing of, of, of righteousness. So those are usually the, the two ways we most commonly think about righteousness. Now, the Old Testament concept of righteousness, though, is, is, a, is fuller than that. It includes the idea of correctness, but correctness in terms of relationship. Now, the righteousness of God that is oftentimes spoken of in the Old Testament is spoken of in the New Testament as well. How, would, how do you describe the righteousness of God? Well, you have to be very careful if, if we're going to apply either of those two definitions of righteousness to God's righteousness because there's not some sort of ethical and moral standard by which God is measured against. There's not some sort of fixed standard out there that God has to measure up to in order to be considered righteous. There's not some sort of um, bar or judicial proceeding or some sort of legal code by which God is judged to determine whether or not he is righteous or unrighteous. So how are we going to think about righteousness when it's used to describe God? And what's that going to say for thinking about even human righteousness for that matter? Well, when you think about the way that the righteousness of God is oftentimes described in the Old Testament, it's described in terms of his actions toward others, be they his enemies who rebel against him and oppose him, and his actions of judgment against them. Are they righteous actions? And of course, the scripture says, yes, they are. Also, you can think about God's actions toward those who are in covenant relationship with him, those who have um, taken refuge in him, those who, who trust in him. And in that case, even when those who trust in him and in covenant relationship with him, even when they have sinned and fallen short of his word, what are his actions toward them? Well, the fact that he doesn't annihilate or send off into eternal condemnation is righteous of God. Why? Well, the New Testament, of course, helps ex explain and clear that all up because there, there is a covenant there. There is a relationship there. And because of that relationship, God is going to act in one way toward that covenant believer and another way toward 
that unbeliever who has not repented of sin, have not trusted in Christ. So when you think about the righteousness of God, it's generally described to us in those ways. And when you think about the book of Romans, well, in many ways, in the book of Romans, Paul is writing the justification of God, the justification of God's righteousness. God is righteous to reveal his wrath against sinners. God's righteous to do so. God's righteous to punish sin. God's also righteous to forgive sin, but only because of the work of Jesus Christ. So righteousness is obviously much more than just the idea that there's some sort of an ethical bar or a moral bar that is, that is fixed that we have to measure up to or that we have to um, keep. So here the concept of righteousness that Jesus is referring to certainly includes the repentance that he had preached back in chapter 4 and verse number 12, but it also includes obeying all that Jesus says. And you think about that at the end of, of chapter 7, verses 20, uh, 24 to 27. But I also want to think for just a moment how the idea of, of relational righteousness comes out, even here in the Sermon on the Mount, as well as in, in some other places. But Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. We oftentimes refer to that as the golden rule. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about how that you love your neighbor. That's what he's talking about. In other words, righteousness is seen in terms of that relation. Matthew chapter 22, verses 35 to 40. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Love God, love neighbor. In other words, there's righteousness is seen in those relationships, in our relation to God and our thoughts and words and actions toward him in light of that relationship and our relationship toward others, again, in light of that relationship to God. Well, we can also think about then how we get the, the ethical dilemma that I talked about earlier when you have heavier and lighter commands. So I, I'm not going to take time to read it, but as you go through the, the Gospel of Matthew, there's a number of encounters that Jesus has um, with, the, with the Pharisees, with some of the, uh, the chief priests, some of the rulers of the, of the synagogues as well, uh, over healings and things on the Sabbath day. So you have a, you have a command uh, pertaining to the Sabbath day. And then you have Jesus essentially affecting a cure, rendering medical treatment, you might say, affecting a cure to someone on the Sabbath day. And they objected to it. And, and Jesus would respond by asking, is it lawful to save life or to destroy it on the Sabbath day? And he talked about how that David ate, ate the showbread when, when he was hungry and he had no food. Uh, and obviously he was guiltless in doing so, essentially breaking a command there. Uh, his disciples, you know, they ate from the, the, the wheat of the field, the grain as they, as they was going through. 
uh, the healing of, of various people. And he talked about how if, if any of you have an animal that gets stuck in a, in a ditch and that animal is, uh, that is you know, in danger, you will get it out on the Sabbath day. And how much greater, how much heavier then is a person and their life than that of an animal? So in other words, you see how you, you've, got a, you've got a conflict there. And, and the Pharisees obviously did not know how to resolve that. You've got a conflict because on the one hand, the law says this, and then on the other hand, the law says this, but then they're in conflict. So they would say, well, which is heavier? And in their minds, the Sabbath was heavier. So you keep the Sabbath and you let the person suffer. So Jesus ex- explained, obviously then, how that it was lawful to save life on the Sabbath day. And again, there were. He did not deny that there were heavier and lighter commandments. But what the problem with the Pharisees was, they were mixed up about which ones those were. Because he uh, rebuked them. They were scrupulous about standards. They were very scrupulous about moral and ethical standards. But they exploited the poor. They devoured widows' houses. They tithed on their herbs, but they omitted to show mercy. So, As Jesus proceeds in the teaching here on the Sermon on the Mount, we have to consider that relational righteousness that runs throughout this message and how Jesus says that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees had had concept of a fixed standard, but that was as as far as they got. When they tried to weigh heavier and and lighter commands, they got all mixed up because they didn't understand the righteousness in those relations. So, relational righteousness, of course, must begin with a right relationship with God. And that relationship, we learn, of course, is according to His mercy and grace that we have a right relationship with God. And from that flows to others. Uh, even as Jesus said that, that you know, you've been forgiven, so you, you forgive others. Well, without that, Jesus says, you cannot enter the kingdom. And what that means is no eternal life and salvation from condemnation. So Jesus tells us here plainly that he came to fulfill the Old Testament fully. That doesn't mean that the Old Testament is worthless. But... His mission was to bring in the new covenant and to give the new covenant law and, in fact, complete the revelation that began in the Old Testament and was completed through the work of his and office of his apostles. So obviously then, understanding this prepares us to understand the ministry and the mission of Jesus and particularly what we know as the Sermon on the Mount that we will study as we continue.